You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome to the Vine Church, expressing itself in a a unique way. We're back to the live stream only. And um, it's easy to be, I don't know, downtrodden. It's easy to be um, negative in this time. But I think it is beautiful to be reminded of things that we can be thankful for. Namely, we have technology where we can still connect even in a way that's truncated and not the way it's supposed to be. But I also think about it like this. You know, this is a time of waiting. Like, the world is waiting for a vaccine. Um, The world is waiting for things to get back to normal. Some people say, maybe there's going to be a new normal. I mean, no one really knows. But we're all waiting for some sense of return to normalcy. We're waiting for the things that James prayed about. And I think that's a huge theme in the Christian life that we, we need to be careful that we don't disregard. And the theme of waiting, another way to say it would be hoping in God, is a, such a rich theme in the Bible. And it's really, really good for our discipleship. So this is a little microcosm of waiting that symbolizes the waiting that we all experience in the Christian life. Waiting for that day when we see face to face, not just dimly, but we see our Savior face to face. Where all of those things that we long for are manifest in eternity. And so I think this is like a training ground, honestly. This waiting, this longing, this angst that we live in right now, pandemic angst, um, is not the way it will always be. And so I think it's really good for us to practice waiting with faith, with hope, with love, with joy. The waiting room is always challenging. You know, if you if you're, have a loved one that's undergoing surgery, the waiting room, man, that's, that's horrible. It's not fun. But there is going to come the great physician that comes one day and says, surgery went great. Everything's going to be good. Like, we long for that day. 
And so if you can understand the metaphor, we're in the waiting room and, and we want to display to an onlooking world that our hope is not this world. And our hope is in King Jesus. And so we, can, we, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to wait with, with joy and with thanksgiving. Um, it's, it's a profound witness. So that ties into, like, how do we have joy in the midst of the struggle? How do we demonstrate that we're Christians to an onlooking world? What does the world see when it sees our values, if you're a Christian right now? That's what our, our text connects to today. It really, really does. This is a profound text for our discipleship. If you boil down the path of discipleship, in some ways you could just take this text for today and it would be a large majority of it. So let's, let's look at our Bibles here as we dive into this text from Matthew 16, as Jesus is speaking to disciples then, disciples now. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So right, right away here we see from that time. So what does that mean? I think what that means is it's connected to last week's text. Do you remember last week? Peter got an A in his theology test. He confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so they get it, in a sense. Peter, speaking for the disciples, they get it. They, they get who Jesus is. They know his identity. They know who he is. And now, today, Jesus is going to show how his identity leads to his action. So they know who he is, and now he's going to tell them what he does. And that's just what he, what he did here in verse 21, right? You know who I am, and here's what I do. I lay down my life, and I'm going to be raised from the dead. I have a mission of saving that I'm all about. Look at verse 21. I'm going to be killed and on the third day raised. Let's keep reading. Last week, Peter got an A on his theology, theology test. Today, Peter gets an F. Look at verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I mean, just think about that. that I mean, let's just kind of stop us in our tracks, right? Jesus, hey, Jesus, I got, I got, I got some counsel for you. I got a correction for you. Like, Jesus, I know you're the man, but you're just a little off base here. And so if I can just kind of tweak what you're saying a little bit, Jesus, then we'll be good. Verse 22, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So Peter can't comprehend this method of saving that Jesus articulates. He doesn't like Jesus' articulation of salvation, his plan, how his identity leads to a certain type of action, right? 
Why would Peter, and he's speaking for the disciples here, why would he not like this? Well, real simply, what Jesus articulated in verse 21 is not their idea of the Messiah. It's not their idea of the Christ, the anointed one. See, in their mindset, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, would come and be a political, military ruler that would come in and remove their oppressors, the Romans, and restore the kingdom, the the political uh, rule and reign of Jewish people in Jerusalem. That's what they believed the promise was of the Messiah at that time. And Jesus, in verse 21, is saying the opposite of that. You see that? Self-preservation of Jesus was the plan for Peter and his disciples, and, and, and the disciples. So they're looking for a kingdom, and that kingdom is right now, and it looks like rule politically, militarily. But if Jesus dies, there's no kingdom. There's no rule. There's no freedom from the oppressors. That's what Peter is thinking. I think it's important that we not condemn Peter because I think if we were all there, we probably would have done the same thing. But let's look at how Jesus responds to Peter. Look at verse 23. But he turned. In my study this week, I learned that this turning is like a, he turned on his heel and was like, you know, he's aggressive here. He turned to Peter and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Now, isn't it interesting here that that Jesus rebukes Peter in the strongest possible way for recommending the way of self-preservation? Like, Peter, don't recommend to me self-preservation. That's satanic. Like, that's, that's a strong statement. Jesus is saying, I will not preserve my life. I will lay it down. And Peter's like, no way. Jesus, self-preservation is the only way. But look at verse 23 again. I want to camp out on this for a bit. Jesus does something very clear and interesting in his response and explanation to Peter. Do you see it? This is why Peter gets the strongest rebuke. What's the logic here of Jesus? Why does Jesus give him such a strong rebuke? What is Peter doing? Jesus creates a, a strong contrast in verse 23, doesn't he? He says, on the one hand, there's the things of God, and on the other hand, there's the things of man. See it? Peter, you're setting your mind on the things of man not on the things of God. There's a contrast there. What Jesus is saying in essence is this. Look at verse 23. He's saying that satanic hindrance to the kingdom of God is this. 
setting your mind on the values of the world. And in this case, the ultimate value of the world that is selfishness and not loving sacrifice. Let me say that again. Verse 23, satanic hindrance to the kingdom of God is this, setting your mind on the values of this world. And in this context, the ultimate value of the world that is selfishness and not loving sacrifice. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Things of man. What's number one on the list? Things of man, things of this world. Self-preservation, right? Get yours. Make the most of yourself. Actualize yourself. Focus on you doing you. Be all you can be. Make your personal dreams come true. Focus on yourself and be yourself. It's immoral to not be yourself. How do you know who you are? By looking inside and don't let anybody ever comment on what you find in there all on your own as an autonomous decision maker about you and you alone. No one else can speak into that. It's all about you. Don't let anyone hold you down. Don't allow anybody to define you by anything or anyone that is other than you. Focus on self. Now, sometimes in our world it's that blatant, but I think most of the time it's more subtle than that. Like we have a billion dollar industry in this world called self-help, right? We don't have a billion dollar industry of how to sacrifice yourself for others in the name of love. That should just tell you something right there, right? Like how many movies have we all watched where the subtle message is forge your own path. Don't let anybody define you or hold you down. Don't let anybody, anybody hold you back. Do whatever it takes for you to be true to yourself. You personally are the only authority, only listen to what you find in your own heart. Now, this message might not be bad if you're being oppressed by a cruel dictator and you're just trying to exist without oppression. And like inside yourself, you're like, this is wrong, I need to resist, right? But that's not the case for most of us. For most of us, this message of self-actualization or only listen to yourself, only think about yourself, only better yourself. And that's the ultimate good in life. That's the essence of it. The point is this. Self-preservation, not self-sacrifice, is the way of the world. And the way of our hearts without the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And this is what Jesus is getting at in verse 23 when he's talking to Peter. And Jesus is just going to 
unpack this now and try to reorient our priorities for disciples then, disciples now. And Jesus is going to lay down a call to action, okay? And then he's going to give some motivation for why that call to action is valid. So Jesus is teaching now, as we keep reading, with some heavy words. But he also teaches with some super encouraging words that make sure you don't miss this morning. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 24. So he's rebuked Peter. And now it's like, now we're going to zoom out a little bit. And he's going to talk to his disciples. Verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it so heavy part encouraging part let's look at the heavy part denial and cross bearing see in our culture we've got a cross behind me here a lot of us might wear a cross around our neck as a form of jewelry we would have no problem wearing clothing that has a cross on it. But see, in the ancient world, again, we have to understand the historical context. What is going on? What, what are the original hearers going to hear? That's going to help us understand really what's going on here. See, in our culture, the cross has been sanitized, normalized. But for these original hearers, what they would have heard is, take up your electric chair. Bring your electric chair with you as you follow me, because that's what it's going to be like. Like if you saw somebody with a, a figure of an electric chair around a necklace, you would be like, that's, that's kind of weird. If we had an electric chair sitting back here behind, like that would be really weird, and people would walk in here and be like, Dude, that's gross. Like, what, what, what's up with this, with this group of people? I mean, you'd probably just get the heck out of here if you saw that. I would. Why do you have a killing machine on stage? Why do you wear a killing machine around your neck? Now, if you're a Christian, you know why we have a cross here. You know why we wear it around the neck. Because we know what that symbolizes. We know what it represents. That's why we have it. Right? Love, sacrifice, salvation. But we also must never forget that the cross also represents Jesus' call to radical sacrifice that's very uncomfortable in the short term. Let me say that again. We must never forget that when we see a cross there, a cross around our neck, that this cross also represents Jesus' call to radical sacrifice. May we never sanitize it or normalize it. The way of Jesus is uncomfortable in the short term. Very uncomfortable. 
And this message has always been foreign to those that, that drink deep of the way of the world, like Peter was drinking deep of the way of the world. And he thought the kingdom was all about Jesus being a military and political ruler. Jesus says to Peter, and disciples then, disciples now, nope, lay it all down. Lay it all down, all power, all prestige, all privilege, and hum I, I welcome you, I call you, humble yourself with me as we are willing to give it all, even our lives. See, crucifixion in the ancient world was as humiliating and painful as it gets. Ultimately alienating. Jesus was utterly alone on the cross. And Jesus says, come to that place with me. Why? Because I'm worth it. This is, the, this is the sobering, count the cost, hard part for us as Jesus followers. But here's where it gets really encouraging. Jesus has good logic. And now he's going to lay that out for his disciples then, disciples now. It's so much more encouraging than a billion-dollar self-help industry that spends money upon money upon money to get you to buy into it more and more by making promises that it can't keep. But Jesus here is about to make a promise that he's been keeping for 2,000 years. Look at verse 25. Here's why he would have the audacity to say what he just said in verse 24. For, or because, or Here's my reason for saying what I just said. Here's the ground. Here's the logic. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus just says to disciples then, disciples now, do you want life? Do you want life? True life, real life, streams of living water kind of life. Do you want satisfaction and joy and life eternal? Jesus says, here's the promise. You can find it right here. This is what we call the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. It's opposite of the values of the world. It's the opposite of the impulses of the world. He says, look at where he says, for my sake. This isn't just losing your life for whatever. No, this is losing your life for King Jesus. If you follow him into that path of loving self-sacrifice for his sake, because he's worth it, and there is life. It's the exact opposite of what the world is trying to get you to buy And millions of people are spending millions of dollars to keep you there. So now, here's the question. We have a decision to make. They had a decision then. We still have a decision now 2,000 years later. The, the question is this. By faith, you have to answer it. Does Jesus know what he's talking about? And that's, that's it right there. That's the question of the Christian life. Does Jesus know what he's talking about? By faith, will I trust him? Do I have ears to hear? Or ultimately, am I going to think, no, I know better. 
He doesn't know what he's talking about. I know better. I'll, I'll do my thing. Like Jesus is making a promise here. These are the promises of God himself. Do we trust the promises of God or not? And that's what it means to walk by faith, to walk by trust. Do I trust that he knows what he's talking about? Do I trust that his words are reliable? Like the world's making promises too. And so is Jesus. And he just lays them out. Disciples then, disciples now. Who are you going to believe? You're going you're to believe somebody. And it's going to be faith. Who's telling the truth? I'll just, I'll just say this. I've tasted the world's promises and been left feeling empty in the long run. And I've tasted Jesus' promises here, and I've never once found him wanting in the long run. See, cross-bearing in the short term, never fun, never easy. But if you're willing to hang with Jesus over the long haul, I've never been let down, ever. And think about culturally how this rings true. I talked about bad movies before. There's a lot of good movies. Think of all the movies that you've seen that elevate the value of self-sacrifice. Like some of the most famous movies, the biggest blockbusters, do this. Saving Private Ryan. Frozen. Lord of the Rings. Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. Tony Stark in Avengers. Spoiler alert. You've had a, uh, you've had a good while to watch it. They all elevate this value of laying down your life for your friends. Laying down your life to save others. Why do these movies rake in millions of dollars? I think it's because deep down we know this is to be commended. Selfishness, selfishness does not satisfy. See, we respect and admire those who sacrifice themselves. That's why when you see a service person, you say to them, thank you for your service. That's why people in the military get benefits that are unique. Because deep down we know that if you lay down your life, we respect and admire those people. God, see, God has written this into the DNA of what it means to be a human being that flourishes. Like, this, the image of God has not been shattered so deeply that we still can't see that loving self-sacrifice is something to, to celebrate. And so you see it in movies, and deep down we're like, wow, yeah, I resonate with that. I, I, I want to see that. I, I want more of that. I get that. It's hard to do. I might not want to do it, but I can still kind of celebrate it. See, it's just a reflection. All those movies are just a reflection of the reality of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Laying down your life for others is good, true, and beautiful. Now look at what Jesus does. He takes his logic one step further. It's so helpful. 
love this. Consider what Jesus says as he just continues to teach his disciples and, and want to convince them. For what, look at verse 26, for what will it profit a man or a woman if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Great question. The rhetorical questions of Jesus are awesome. This is one of the best ones. Great question, Jesus. What will it profit a man or a woman if they gain the whole world and lose their soul? Another great rhetorical question. What shall a man give in return for his soul? Great question. See, when you're on your deathbed, things get real, real clear, right? When you've been given the news, there's nothing more we can do. The cancer is spreading. We've done it all. You've got three to four months. Things get real clear. Priorities become really clear. I was just in my hometown where I play, a, every other month I play a jazz gig uh, with my trio. And I get to see my mom because she's a widow. So it's kind of two birds with one stone. And uh, one of my uh, friends, he's a former professor of mine, Jacques Dubois, uh, at the University of Northern Iowa. He would always come to my gigs every single time I'm down there. And uh, he's been given that message. The lung cancer has spread. There's nothing more we can do. And you've got about two months, probably. And he was at my gig on Friday night, and we chatted. And he's a lot more frail. He's happy. He knows the Lord. But here's the deal. We weren't talking about frivolous things. He wasn't telling me about his 401K. He wasn't talking about remodeling his house. He was talking about his wife that died a few months ago and how he longs to see her and that he knows he's in the Lord's hands. That's what he's talking about. Like when you're on your deathbed, you're not going to give a rip about your possessions. You're not going to give a rip about what you've gained in this world, privilege, prestige, power, money, sex, control, none of that stuff's going to matter. Career advancement. What are you going to care about? You're going to care about relationships. Your relationship with your creator, sustainer, and savior and your relationship with family and friends. This is what God created you for, to love him and love others. That's what you're going to care about. That's it. And the promises of the world to get yours, to make something of yourself, to actualize yourself, to assert yourself, to be all you can be and listen to no one but your internal sense of everything, you're not going to give a rip about that on your deathbed. And Jesus, in his word, Matthew 16 
Verse 25, 26, he's asking us to reevaluate our priorities to reflect the priority of eternity, not temporal life. He's saying if you want true profit, if you want true gain, follow me. Short term, way of the cross. Long term, the way of resurrection. And life eternal. Eternal profit. See, if somebody rose from the dead and is making these promises, I think you can bet on him. See, God gets maximum glory when we live this out. You know, in our, in our vision statement that says that we're the vine family that seeks to make disciples and plant churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration, this is the demonstration part that's really compelling. It's not just normal nicey-niceyness. Everybody in the world can do that. But when you lay down your life, that's unique. That's when the, when the, when the world's going to stand up and go, man, there's something different about these people at the vine. And then you get a chance to explain it. That's the declaration part. Like, why would you guys be so generous? Why would you guys give all this money to, to send people all over the world and to plant churches in Madison and, and, and to have radical acts of service for, for the city of Madison and the people on the margins? Why would you do that? Well, they're only going to ask if it's unique. It is, is it unique? Not because we have anything to prove. But because Jesus approved it all, and we love him, and we trust this promise, and we're going to follow him into it. I'm going to close with a quote from a pastor that I was reading this week in my study. And I'm going to give you one illustration, and we'll be done. Listen to what this uh, one pastor, speaking to a, a group of college students, but it could be any of us, about 15 years ago. So I ask all of you now, are you going to throw away your life with the rest of the world by striving to minimize your suffering and maximize your comforts in this life? Are you going to work for the bread that perishes, build bigger barns, lay up treasures on earth, strive for the praise of man? Or will you see in Christ crucified and risen, bearing the sins of his people, Will you see in this God-man the all-satisfying treasure of your life? Will you say with Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain? I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I believe with all my heart that when God raises up a generation like this, the completion of the Great Commission will come to pass. Because it will not come to pass unless a generation is joyfully willing to lay down their lives. The remaining unreached peoples of the world are almost all in dangerous places. 
If your generation buys into the American mindset of preserving comfort and safety and security and ease, you will be passed over and God will get his work done another way. And over your generation and over much of mine will be written, fool, whose will these things be? And the tragic word, wasted. But if your passion is to display the worth of Christ and thus to treasure him above all things, and thus to risk and sacrifice for the display of his supreme value, then I do not doubt that God will use you mightily and that the commitments you make to the hard places of East Asia or the Middle East or North Africa or post-Christian Europe or urban America will be fulfilled. And in those places, the glory of Christ will shine through you and thousands of people will see and put their trust in the Lord. And over their lives and over your life will be written the words, this life was not wasted. This life gladly displayed the glory of Christ both in life and in death. Let me close with this illustration. It's just a story. I had just returned from our first trip to Morocco. We were just doing a vision trip, scoping it out, seeing how we could partner there. And upon returning, we had our neighbors over. And at that time, our neighbors were uh, foreign students from Singapore. And we got to know them really well. We had them over for dinner a lot. It was really cool. And I was explaining our trip and explaining about what happens when churches are planted in Morocco and, uh, and disciples are made of indigenous Moroccan believers. And oftentimes... If a Moroccan gets baptized and follows Jesus, they really have to count the cost in ways that are different than someone in our culture. Legally, that's a sentence of death. Now, in Morocco, they don't typically do that, but that's the letter of the law. It's the letter of Moroccan law. If a Moroccan converts, they can be executed. What normally happens, though, is family ostracization. You're just shunned. Discrimination. Might not be able to get a job. Shunned by your closest community and maybe the broader community. And I was just explaining that. And I'll never forget our neighbors, unbelievers from Singapore, as I'm explaining what we do to plant churches and, and call people to Christ. She says, if that's what would happen... Why would anybody want to become a Christian and be a part of the church in Morocco? I was just kind of struck by how frank her question was. And then it just dawned on me, and I said, because Jesus is worth it. Because Jesus is worth it. And his promises always fulfill. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? We believe, help our unbelief, that the truth of your word would be actualized in our lives as a church for an onlooking world. Would you make us people that don't just say a vision of our church, but live of this vision of our church? We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.